Hi, and welcome to the 40 Drinks Podcast. Today, I'm talking to my friend Jana Hartley, who tells us about how she felt like she turned 40 at 25 as a reaction to her brother doing some seriously grown-up things, and how joining a roller derby team in her 30s allowed her to create an alter ego that, she says, was more her than her regular persona. You'll hear about Jana's year of no fear when she turned 40, and how she made a conscious decision to get out of her own way as part of her healing after her fiancé committed suicide. But more on that later. Jana. Hi. Thanks so much for joining me. I'm so excited here. <laughs> you are my very first guest on the 40 Drinks podcast. Yay. Which is just so perfect in so many ways. We've been together as a couple professionally <laughs> for like 12 years now. And you were also one of my 40 Drinks drinks. So this is a fabulous way to start the podcast because we've got sort of all these great connections and you and I have kind of grown up together for the last 12 or so years, which is kind of crazy. Oh, it's definitely crazy with just all the changes and both work and, and personally. I know. I know. How old are you now? Remind me. I know you're a little bit younger than me. 46. That's what I thought. Okay. So you're 46. Do you remember turning 40? I don't. I think I celebrated my 40th when I was 25. My brother was in the middle of having his first child and I had a bit of a quarter life crisis. And so that for me was a big one. And I think it was because of his, you know, taking on parenting and me not being anywhere near that. Well, and let's just clarify your twin brother. My twin brother. Not just like a random like brother, a year old or a year younger. Right. This is your like, this is your other half. <laughs> There's a certain expectation of, of sort of parallel life experiences. Yeah. You know, we started baseball at the same time. We started basketball. School started the same time, every grade. And so I think there were certain expectations that, you know, he had gotten married and he was having a kid and I suddenly had this midlife, but it was quarter life crisis. Yeah. Yep. So rather than have a kid, I bought a car. And then when he had his second kid, I bought a motorcycle. Okay. Were these conscious decisions on your part? Or do you think they were just like random, like, ah? When I was 25, I think it was very conscious. Okay. This is what's going on. And this is my reaction to it. So then flash forward to when you actually turned 40, which is only about six years ago. Were there any emotions? Was there any, you know, weirdness about the number? You're not really a numbers person, I think. Yeah, no, I, I don't really think so much about the number as it, it did become a little bit of a milestone in terms of letting go of things in my past. And I'm if so I remember yeah. correctly, that was the year I wanted to, you know, kind of get out of my own way and sort of anxieties and fears. 
And so I had done a couple things. I wanted it to be more that year. I wanted to do a lot of different things where I kind of just said yes. That was your year you did that little blog. What was it? The the year of no fear. Right. Oh, yeah. And so that was the year I gave away Steve's guitars. Okay. So talk a little bit about Steve. Steve was my fiance and he had committed suicide in 2006. How old were you then? I was 26. No, or 31. (laughs) Somewhere in there. Okay. 1975 to 2006. 31. 31. Okay. So So 40, you were ready to sort of release some of that. I was ready to start releasing that. I had really started overcoming a lot of anxieties since his passing through having, starting with grief counseling, but that turned into let's deal with some, some OCD and social anxieties and, and things like that. And I think, you know, roller derby had certainly helped with that, but I really wanted to start experiencing life in a way where I wasn't so conscious of what other people might be thinking of what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. And, and that used to come in even while I was grocery shopping. I mean, I used to think people are looking in my shopping cart and had thoughts about what I am buying. So I really wanted to tackle that. I think it was that year. And so even a group of friends of mine in, I think it was February of that year, we went to a bar in Manchester in our Halloween costumes. And, you know, it got a lot of good reaction from the patrons. Like, why are you doing this? Wait, what date did you go to this bar? Valentine's. That's what I thought. I remember it wasn't Halloween. I remember you guys got all dressed up. It was Valentine's Day. And so I put my sock monkey costume on and uh, one of my friends was a cow and another was Batgirl. I can't remember the fourth one, but my friend who was a cow ordered a shot of milk and I ordered, because I was a monkey, I ordered a banana beer. (laughs) And And the weights played right into it. They loved it. The, you know, people there were asking why we were doing this. It, It had a really good reception. I think adults should do Halloween any day of the year. Right. So now this night that you went out with your friends all dressed up, was it specifically for you or was it sort of like an idea that came together and everybody was like, yay? It was specifically my idea for me to try to not be so self-conscious of being out in public and with the possibility that people are going to be looking at us. You know what's so crazy to me? Is that I went back and read my blog post from when we had our drink and it very clearly said that when I met you, you had bright green hair. And so it's, and today you have, I, what I love your, you call it your mermaid do. Oh, it's so gorgeous. Oh my God. It's so cool. And yet you feel like people are looking at you, but you've always had like this totally funky, cool like, you know, art chick look. I think it started with roller derby, actually. Did it? Oh, okay. So you didn't have the green hair before roller derby. No. And I think that having an alter ego in roller derby. So in roller derby, you pick a name, you pick a persona, an alter ego. And so the roller derby clothing, the miniskirt, the fishnets, all of that would never have been something that I did on purpose (laughs) to go anywhere public or private outside of potentially Halloween roller derby with that alternate persona, that alter ego 
really sort of allowed me to be somebody else, but that somebody else was more me. But you started roller derby. So I'm doing math and we all know how bad I am at math. So you were like 31-ish. So if, if Steve passed away in 2006 and I was 31, yeah. one year later, I started dating Jeremy. Yeah. That is when I started roller derby. It was the fall, one year after Steve's death. And then 2008 for St. Pat's. Okay. So 2008 St. Patrick's Parade, that's when we met. So I would have just turned 33 in January of 2008. Okay. 33. Okay. So do you remember why you decided to do roller derby? I saw an advertisement for a meeting and I don't recall if. I talked to Jeremy about it and he was just that supportive or if I told him I wanted to do it, but there was something sort of timing wise, I think with Steve's death and that one year anniversary. And I think looking for something new and looking for a distraction and looking for something to occupy time. And so I think that was probably why I went to the meeting. And then, you know, meeting the women that I did, it just, it seemed like it was going to be a really good time. So 33 then, but it was still another seven years of sort of, you know, gradual transition until you came to this conscious decision of the year of no fear and I'm going to conquer things. Yeah. Was that, do you feel like there was an evolution along the way in those seven years? I think it started actually with an internet challenge. A director, Jeremy Lalonde, issued a challenge, I remember, and I think it was to do something that made you uncomfortable. And so I did a video of me singing. I don't sing. I don't sing for anybody. I don't sing happy birthday. I still don't. And, you know, some people had had submitted their challenge videos, too. And then he compiled them, you know, as the director that he is. And he actually used the song that I had picked, which was uh, Get By With A Little Help From My Friends, as the background uh, song for the entire video. And so, you know, I won some nice swag from his upcoming film and autographs and things like that. And I think that's what kicked that off was that challenge. And, And it terrified me that people would see that online someplace. Right, right. We're going to have to go find it. I know you said you had your big quarter life crisis around your brother's transitions and his growth path. Do you feel like you were making decisions in your younger years that were made because you should do something or you thought your parents would have wanted you or your teachers or mentors or the man, a boss? Did, did you make decisions for other people? In your younger years? I would say absolutely. I, I, I think there's a certain amount of this that I was born with. So mm-hmm. back up to birth. My mother tells a story of when my brother learned to crawl and learned to walk. And he would go in circles and I would sit there. And even though I was three minutes older, I had not mastered crawling or walking. And I would knock him over as he came around. And then my mom That's said, so one perfect. day I managed to skip crawling and went straight to walking. And in hindsight, she says she thinks I was practicing when nobody could see. Because in college, when I learned to rollerblade, I went out in the middle of the night, 3 a.m. I was going to say that sounds just like you. Nobody would see me fall. Right. If I was skiing, 
I wasn't trying anything new under the chairlift where somebody could yell yard sale. Right. I was on the back trails. So she will tell you that right from the beginning, from birth, I was a perfectionist. And I did not want people to see me fail at anything. Mm -hmm. I talked second, but she says, but then it was full sentences. Right. So she says, you know, you must have been practicing. And so I think that, you know, right from the beginning, all decisions were based on whether or not I could do something and whether or not people might think negatively. Mm -hmm. So, you know, through school, I never raised my hand. I never spoke up. I was quiet. I did my work. I got my A's. Mm -hmm. It was in um, high school. My mom had a parent-teacher conference with Mr. Wiswell, my freshman English teacher, and he told her how smart I was and, you know, willing to help other students and this and that. And he says, there's only one problem. My mom says she won't raise her hand. And he says, exactly. And she says, she's not going to. You're going to have to call on her. That point forward, he started just randomly calling on me. Yes, I had the answer. Right. He never raised my hand because I didn't want to not have the answer or be wrong. Technically, I was never wrong, but I didn't, you know, that fear. So, yeah, that's it's always been there. So it's interesting, right? Because with a twin and especially with let's just call Mark precocious, if he was doing all these things before you, even if it was just four minutes after, you know, there must have been sort of like a a measuring up, a keeping up kind of thing from as, you know, as far back as you were conscious. I think that we've, we've always had a certain competitiveness. That was one reason I actually chose not to try out for peewee football was I felt that even if I did worse, I would still get the praise because I was a girl. And so Mm -hmm. I didn't want to take that away from him. Mm -hmm. So that was sort of when our sports paths diverged a little bit, because otherwise we were playing the same sports all the time. And so there was a certain, we were were both goalies for soccer and we played the same positions in baseball. He was the pitcher. I was the catcher, but you know, competitiveness, but also we were each other's best friends and biggest supporters too. And then at a certain point, Mark's path in high school went a little bit different. And I think I started trying even harder not to do wrong because I did not want my parents to deal with more than they had to. Now you were compensating. If he was going to be a little bad, you wanted to be even more good. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Well, so it's funny because you have sort of always done that, especially when it comes to your family unit, right? So Mark went off and moved out of the country for what a decade he was gone a long time wasn't he he was probably in germany for three years but then he was in virginia then you know a few hours away in massachusetts so even after his service he was not in new hampshire if you're enjoying the 40 drinks podcast please subscribe using your favorite podcast streaming service you can follow along with us on social media at 40 drinks f-o-r-t-y drinks on both Facebook and Instagram. I, I despise this story, but I love it. You came to me one day and you said, hey, we're thinking of putting our house on the market and, you know, it probably won't sell. And, you know, this probably isn't going to happen for any time soon. But I just want to let you know that, you know, we might be thinking of maybe moving somewhere. And I was like, uh, okay. You undersold it so hard that I was like, nothing to think about. First day offer. Yeah. Yeah. Your house sold immediately. 
And then you guys decided to divest yourselves of all your stuff. We drove south until we saw palm trees and I could take my winter hat off and said, okay, this is good. So you just up and moved to South Carolina, I think three weeks after you told me that you might put the house on the market. Well, it was a 30-day closing, so we, we, we left the day of the closing. A couple of those spontaneous things that I've done. I mean, Jeremy and I went on a two-week trip. We had no hotel reservations. Mm-hmm. We slept in truck stops. We happened to get a hotel across from Graceland mm-hmm. one night. And, you know, we had no plan, no itinerary, no nothing. With this move, too, it was, oh, crap, we need to find a place to live. The house sold. <laughs> Right. The the housing market back then, a couple of years ago, was not what it is now. There was no reason to think that your house would sell the day it went on the market. We thought, oh, we, it'll be on the market three, four, five weeks. And then, you know, it'll be three months to close. Yeah, I was like, I have plenty of time. And then you were gone. So what made you feel like it was time or that you could? Like, that's a big decision. That's a big jump. Like, you have always been so rooted to home and your parents. And now all of a sudden you're sort of footloose and fancy free. What changed? I would say it was 15 years in the making okay. and then bang one day, <laughs> you know, it was 15 okay. years plus a day okay. um, because it was almost every place I traveled South. I wanted to live. Mm-hmm. I wanted to be any place, but New Hampshire. So when I visited Tennessee, I wanted to stay there. When I visited Texas, I wanted to stay there. When I visited Florida, Savannah, Georgia, like, Everything south of the Mason-Dixon, I wanted to move to. After every trip, I was so disappointed to go home to New Hampshire. But there was that feeling of being connected to the state, to family, to, you know, friends, to work, and all of it. And, and I think it just became, with Jody's support, with him on board, I could get over myself again and say, okay, you know what? It's time to do something for me. Mark went to Germany. He was away. I was helping with my parents' store, working two jobs, doing all those things, attending all the holidays and events and patching drywall if dad needed and stuff like that. Feeling also that the cost of living in New Hampshire was in winter. We're really hindering. I mean, when I used to ski before my knee injury, and my ankle injury, I had no problem with winter. Mm-hmm. I was skiing 20, 30 times a year. Winter right. was fun. But when you stop doing that, winter is depressing. It's cold. It hurts the bones. It's you don't go anywhere. At best, you might go to dinner and you're just getting fat. So now go to the beach in the winter. And yes, it's a bit chilly to go swimming, but the water is still warmer than Hampton. We can go golfing in the winter. We can go do stuff. I can go jogging in shorts and a t-shirt still in February. So what I'm hearing from you, what I'm seeing in my head is that there has been like a lot of shedding like I'm almost seeing you like running with all your winter clothes on and just like leaving all these things behind all these shoulds all these somebody else's you know expectation or other people's you know wants and needs and so including mine by the way which I was not thrilled about because I want and need you to be here with me but we've made it we are still working together consistently and happily Every time we go for a drive anywhere and I see those palm trees, I'm smiling. Like every place we go here, there is this warmth or this feeling of, I am so happy to be here. Even if we're going to Walmart. Yeah, that's awesome. 
That's awesome. It's interesting. It's been a long journey for you. That sort of like personal evolution and personal transformation, right? You nailed it when you said 15 years plus one day. I mean, it's like those artists, like the the overnight sensations. Yeah, we've been doing this for 11 or 12 years, but one day it hit because there are moments where it's like there's a visible taste of the transformation, like like almost a little like jump forward. But it's in, in the context of a much sort of longer and gentler. It looks completely spontaneous or sudden or as if I must have had some sort of weird Britney Spears nervous breakdown <laughs> and, and just decided and I, to move. I was concerned about that for a moment. But it, it wasn't. It was really this longing and wanting and desire to go do something. And even along that path, we've actually been talking about, because we've had a couple issues with either the construction of the first house or losing the second house, we're starting to discuss the nomadic life and what would it take to get an RV with all the seasonal campgrounds down here and up north. And hey, you want to go to Tennessee for six months or a year or whatever. There's a lot to research with regard to domicile and you really need a home state for health insurance and, and all of this other stuff. But, you know, we've, we've started to talk about the, the things we own and, and what could we do without? What would that look like? So, you know, it's possible that you're going to see something. You could potentially see something all of a sudden where we say oh, we're going to buy an RV and live around the country. But it'll be a few years down the road. It'll actually have been five years in the making. Just like when you were an infant and a toddler, a lot of like underground or behind the scenes. I almost picture it in my head for you. It's a lot of mental practice until you're ready. And then boom, you walk, you talk. When I can do it, show it off and make it look right and make it look spontaneous. Awesome. Awesome. Jana, it's been a delight talking to you. Thank you so much for joining me today. I wish you all the best. And I do not want to see you being a nomad (laughs) for exceptionally selfish reasons, but we've made this work. So we'll make that work. It could take that path to New Hampshire. So you never know. Uh, Oh, so you could come back for occasion. Uh, Maybe I'll be on board after all. Thanks, Jana. You're welcome. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening. If you liked what you heard today, please subscribe wherever you listen and share with your friends. If you or someone you know has a great story about either a midlife personal evolution or specifically about turning 40, I want to hear it. And I probably want to invite that person to join me on the podcast. Go to 40drinks.com slash guest to submit a name. Next week's episode would go great with a glass of big red wine if you're into that kind of thing. I'll be talking to my friend Jamie Lang, one of my original 40 Drinks friends, who seems to be Goldilocksing her way to have happiness. The 40 Drinks podcast is produced by Outpost Productions and presented by Savoir Faire Marketing Communications. 